Hi, and welcome to Vax Talk, the podcast about everything vaccine that you need to know. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician. I'm at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And today we are going to be talking with Dr. Paul Offit about outbreaks and uh, all of the current outbreaks that we have going on and why they're happening and what we can do about them. But first, Nathan and I like to start with our segment that we call Around the Web. Um, Nathan, do you want to s- tell us what you saw on the internet that you found interesting? Sure. So I have a couple, uh, one of which is kind of a follow-up to uh, what we talked about last week when we talked about this alleged uh, RFK Jr. Uh, commission. And that is l- what I've been impressed with recently is looking at this letter that was written by the American Academy of Pediatrics where they recruited 350 different uh, health organizations to kind of co-sign this letter uh, that they wrote to the president uh, and basically sums up the case for vaccination, sums up the case for their safety, um, goes into the 350 uh, organizations, national organizations as well as state organizations um, like, uh, you know, what I'm on the board of, the Iowa uh, chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics is on here, um, and just an impressive list of people who are standing up for immunizations, uh, and then goes right on into the evidence, too. It's a really nice handy link. I think if there's a chance that we could put this, uh, attach this to the, to the um, page that's going to link to this podcast, um, it's, a, I think, a very handy link of information all in one place. It goes through basically all the examine the evidence uh, studies that the American Academy of Pediatrics has put together to show vaccine safety in general and particularly dispel myths about uh, vaccines and autism, including MMR vaccine and autism and thimerosal and that kind of thing. And so that was really nice to be to see people coming together. You know, I, we're seeing a lot of this lately of people wanting to come together and stand up for science. There's this uh, March for Science that's coming up that I'm very interested in uh, and hopeful about. There's... Um, uh, things like this that give me some hope that people are willing to band together uh, and, and stand up for uh, science, stand up for children's safety, and kind of push back against the people that want to endanger that. Right. And did you notice down by the V's, the V section of those 350 that Voices for Vaccines was a signee on that? Oh, let me take a look here. Yes, <laughs> very good. <laughs> yes, we did. Well, mine, the, w- the thing that I saw this week is a little bit more on the uh, silly side, and that's that I saw a few, um, a few articles around the Internet claiming that the CDC was raided by the FBI. Um, and I <laughs> just want to lead with the fact that it wasn't. Um, but this is sort of along the terms of long-standing conspiracy theories that the CDC is up to no good, and there's evil, terrible things going on, and the FBI is investigating them. And so, and it's also along the theme of 2017, it seems, is what is real and what is not real in the news. Uh, and so that, that, is, that caught my attention. Um, I had a number of people sending me this link saying, you know, was the CDC really 
raided by the FBI. That sounds terrible. Are there horrible things going on? And the answer is actually no. Um, and it even made it to Snopes, and Snopes gave it a big red false rating. So everyone can rest assured that uh, the CDC is continuing its work um, under the direction of uh, interim director Anne Shookit, who is uh, pretty wonderful. So, um, so <laughs> things go forth from there. There was also that weird false news thing about Trump suddenly suspending immunizations or something yes. like that that I yeah. saw. Yeah, Donald Trump and suspended yeah. the immunization program for nine. Like, no one could get vaccines for 90 days, and he did right. that all on his own. <laughs> the vaccine ban. Yeah, the vaccine okay. ban. Everything. <laughs> that, that also so. did not happen. Take your kids to get immunized. It's fine. Yeah, I don't have, a like, a Snopes article on it, but I can tell you that, you know, You've been no ban. Vaccines. Been giving <laughs> vaccines. Fantastic. All right. Yeah. And that, uh, do you have you one more, too? Um, I had another thing. Oh, yeah, I had the, the Pew research, some Pew research came out, um, Pew Internet research, uh, that basically looked at uh, Americans and parents and their hesitancy towards immunizations, particularly the MMR. And it didn't have too many in the way of what I would consider surprising uh, stats. Uh, because the the thrust of it was that parents of young children are more vaccine hesitant than parents of uh, older children or of adult children, and I mean that that, that that's kind of obvious. It, it's not, I, I think, a real surprise that parents that are looking at the decision about immunizations have more hesitancy than parents that are kind of past that decision making and are going to be just generally feeling more comfortable about vaccinations uh, when they look back at you know their own children and whatnot. But the, the, the one interesting stat that I pulled out of it was that it said that 17% of Americans say that parents should be able to decide not to vaccinate mm -hmm. and that that's actually I, I think I mean I don't I, I think that's kind of a good number there I mean I like the fact that 83% say that it's really not just not a choice that just a parent should make right. I'm kind of surprised that that number isn't higher in terms of this the 17% because although we can't really debate the science of vaccines there's no debate there certainly i can see there's discussion to be had about where does where do my rights end where does another person's rights begin but the fact that 83% say no vaccines are important enough everybody really needs to get them i think that's great i think that's right. a, a, a reassuring i i agree that the, the um message that vaccines are a public choice not just a private choice is breaking through so that's fantastic mm -hmm. all right well um before i introduce dr offit i just want to mention a couple of things to our wonderful audience um and f first of all uh you know we had um well over a thousand people read or listen to our first podcast which is amazing and uh, the great thing about that is I, I got some wonderful feedback from people so if you enjoyed our podcast or if you're going to enjoy this one which we know you will go ahead and go to iTunes do a search for Vax Talk and leave a review give us five stars um, or if you don't feel like giving us five stars just skip that step altogether and don't bother um, but yeah think about giving us five stars on iTunes 
Uh, secondly, I just want to mention that we don't have commercial breaks in this podcast. We're not selling underwear or mattresses or anything that, that a lot of podcasts sell. Um, this podcast is produced by Voices for Vaccines, which is a nonprofit organization. And so if you are enjoying this podcast and if you want to see us continue, please go to voicesforvaccines.org slash support and leave a little donation. And that's my that's our commercial break. Um, so we'll move on. I want to introduce our guest today is Dr. Paul Offit, who is the director of the Vaccine Education Center for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I think I said that correctly. Hi, Paul. Hi, Karen. Hi, Nathan. Hey, thanks very much for being on. Thank you. Yeah, it's it is an absolute honor to have you on, Paul. And I just want to go through and uh, just some numbers about current outbreaks in the United States. Um, I am going to go over numbers for mumps, measles, and pertussis. So for mumps, uh, from January 1st through January 28th of this year, we already have 495 cases of mumps. In 2016, we had 5,311 cases. Um, and just some context for that, before 1967, when we had the, license, the vaccine licensed, we had about 186,000 cases per year. Um, the measles vaccine, uh, January 1st through the 28th of this year, we have 23 cases of measles in California, Co Colorado, Florida, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. 2016 saw 70 cases, and of course, 2015 was the Disneyland outbreak with 188, and 2014 before that was the uh, outbreak in Ohio among the Amish community with 667 cases. And with pertussis, um, the New, the latest number I could find was 20, 2014. We've had 32,000 cases. Um, and so we've kind of hovered between, uh, you know, around that 30,000 mark, I think, for a few years. And so we have um, some sick people among us. And of course, we've got influenza circulating pretty widespread across the country right now. And it looks like primarily H1N1 and H3N2. So that is what is making people sick in our communities. So Dr. Offit and Dr. Boonstra, what's going on? Well, I, I guess I'll start. Um, you could actually predict what you're seeing based on the effectiveness of those three vaccines. I mean, if you had to rate those three vaccines, the most effective is measles, second would be mumps, and third would be pertussis or whooping cough. Measles is an excellent vaccine. I mean, we eliminated measles from the United States by the year 2000. The only reason that we're seeing outbreaks now is because parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children, or at least a critical number have chosen not to vaccinate their children. If you if you were, were where we were in the year 2000, you can eliminate that disease from this country. We did. So that's that's measles. Mumps is a different story. If you look at the, at the early research on mumps vaccine, um, one thing that researchers do is they look at the, the when you give the vaccine in the early in the early vaccine trials, you look at the frequency of virus specific circulating B and T cells, B cells are the cells in your body that make antibody, T cells are the cells in your body that help B cells make antibody. If you look at the frequencies and the circulation of people who got those vaccines, for measles and for rubella, the, the frequencies were 500 to 600 cells per 100,000 cells. But for mumps, it was less than 100. 
that was always the weakest of the three vaccines and and i think the the data bear that out we eliminated mumps measles sorry we eliminated measles from the united states in 2000 we eliminated rubella from the united states in 2005 we've never eliminated mumps and what you see is is when we had a single dose mumps vaccine you would start to see uh children again be susceptible 10 years after dose one and now you're seeing with a second dose that children become susceptible uh if 10 years after dose two which means sort of late adolescence early adulthood and that's where you're generally seeing the outbreaks you're seeing them for example on college campuses um it, it would be hard to eliminate mumps um but we can certainly get it down to where it was which is in the sort of 100 to 200 cases per year range the reason you, that you when you start to see more at some level it's because there's uh, a lack of immunization but i think again the the bigger issue on that vaccine is is fading immunity for what was a vaccine that didn't induce a high frequency of memory b and t cells in the circulation pertussis you know you need a better pertussis vaccine if you think about this vaccine this is a vaccine you get at two four six months of age you get it again at 12 to 15 months of age you get it again at four to six years of age and you get it again at 11 to 13 years of age that's six doses by the time you're a teenager and then even three years after that sixth dose you start to see fading immunity now this was not true with the so-called whole cell pertussis vaccine which was made using the whole bacteria this is a uh, is a vaccine that's made using you know selective proteins from that bacteria depending on the um on which uh company makes it anywhere between two and five of those proteins but that and it's a safer vaccine but it's definitely a less effective vaccine we could use a better pertussis vaccine frankly and i'm not kidding i think the country would be far better off going back to where we were with the whole cell pertussis vaccine you know which was claimed to cause side some side effects that it never caused like permanent brain damage i'm not, we would never be able to bring it back i think as as the whole cell pertussis vaccine because people just still have that memory that the vaccine could do some things that it didn't do maybe we could call it pertussis classic or something maybe that would work <laughs> yeah i think that the even the public perception issues with that are going to be pretty significant even if it does protect better and and keep us from having as much whooping cough uh, going back to your mumps, uh, going back to what you said about mumps. Um, so we had recently an outbreak, I think it was last year, here at the University of Iowa. It was a very large mumps outbreak here. And um, that was when public health started uh, recommending in that area for basically all students at the University of Iowa that they get the third dose of the MMR vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about what research there is on the third dose, when it is most beneficial? I'm thinking of it as a general pediatrician where there's little mumps outbreaks nearby. When do I start thinking about, do I offer families a third dose for protection against mumps or do I, do I wait for public health? Are there, what, what should I be thinking along those lines? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And in many ways, it's a common sense question. And so the question becomes, do you as a, as a physician believe that there is enough mumps in the community or the area where you're, you're interested in vaccinating that particular child that would be of value? My, my son was at the University of Richmond um, when there was a mumps outbreak. He had had two doses of the mumps vaccine. And the at that time, the CDC wasn't quite as clear on whether or not to get a third dose. It was more of a should be considered recommendation. I mean, I gave him that third dose because he clearly would benefit from it it's a safe vaccine it's certainly going to be effective for a 10-year period so it's an easy decision i mean if the vaccine had a difficult side effect profile it's a harder decision but that's not true here so i think the answer to your question is when you you think that there is a reasonable risk of being uh, coming in contact with mumps then give it i don't think you have to wait for a public health recommendation sure and that's kind of the the philosophy that i've taken 
Um, and sometimes parents will actually call up and ask for it. And in general, even if I think the, I don't know how close the, the outbreak is or what their level of exposure is, if they're interested in protecting their kid against mumps because they think that their kid could be at risk, I'm certainly willing to do that. Sure. So my question as a parent then is, you know, if I'm sending my kid off to, to college and uh, maybe there isn't a current mumps outbreak at the college I'm sending him to, you know, is it, is it a little paranoid to say, could I, can we get a third mumps or a third MMR vaccine right now anyhow? Um, you know, and just as some background, I've got, uh, we already have one child that I always say we've gotten rid of. He went into the Marine Corps and he actually had to be re-immunized. So he's had three doses of the MMR vaccine because we lost his vaccine records. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I sent him off to into the Marine Corps being like, well, you're covered, you're good. But, you know, I is it overly paranoid for parents to think, well, should I just go ahead and the, you know, ACIP isn't recommending it, but should I go ahead and get that? I, I don't think it's paranoid at all. I, I, you think about it, when, when you go to college or you go, you know, say, become an army recruit, you're now bringing together people from, you know, large sections of the country into one small, generally confined space, whether it's an army barrack or whether it's a, a dormitory. So I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to do that. There's certainly no no downside other than, than cost. I'm, I'm not sure to what extent insurance companies will rut routinely pay for a third dose. I think Nathan probably knows that better than I, I do. It's yeah. funny, I was just about to ask that and I was just about to say I don't know off the top of my head about coverage for the third dose and also and I can google this real quick but I don't know the cost of the vaccine I mean I feel like it's not nearly as expensive as you know say an HPV vaccine or some of these other newer ones um, but I'll have to look that up sure um, and so yeah, that that actually, I'm glad you were talking about bringing people together into dorms because I made a note when I was looking at the mumps outbreak page on the CDC website that um, it seems that most of the outbreaks are on college campuses and it said and the National Hockey League, um, which we all remember the the NHL mumps outbreak that you know caused all sorts of people at least in minnesota some consternation as uh, hockey games were canceled um and so what is it about mumps that makes it sort of prime for being spread on a college campus or in you know a, an army barracks or in the nhl well i mean it, it like measles is spread by respiratory droplets by small droplets so it's pretty easily spread it's fairly contagious and again if you bring people from you know from a variety of areas of the country together there may you increase the likelihood that one or more of those people would, would have been exposed um i think it's just you know so why the national hockey league um I, I think again it's just just for the same reason that it occurs on college campuses or the same reason that it would occur in an army barracks i, I only wish that it would have affected the philadelphia flyers because then they would have a reason for why they're losing so much <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm not. I don't follow the flyers, but <laughs> that's. Uh... Uh, sorry. Just uh, uh, going back. I just looked up on CDC. Uh, gov and the private sector cost it lists of an MMR vaccine is sixty-seven dollars and three cents. But that actually might be. Now I'm looking at it. That might be. Oh no. That, that might be a. 10 pack? Ah, uh, shoot. Need to do more research. No, that, that, that I did. While recording. Uh, I think yeah, I, that, that doesn't that's make a sense. No, you're right. That It does say cost per dose when it's listed out on the thing. Okay, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, about 70 bucks. All right. So, you know, when we're talking about transmission, um, 
and pre preventing disease. Um, I just want to ask a question for parents who are like me. Um, why why do we prevent mumps? Because I've never seen mumps before in my life. What What is this disease we're preventing? And is it important to prevent it among people who are college age? Yes. Um, you know, when, when a child gets mumps, I think most people think of it as, as infecting the parotid glands, you know, which are salivary glands that are associated with helping you to di digest food. Um, and so those, you know, it, it's sort of cute. Ch you know, children look like chipmunks. But uh, the fact of the matter is the virus could also spread to the lining of the brain and spinal cord and cause meningitis, what, you know, what physicians refer to as aseptic meningitis, meaning a viral meningitis, not a bacterial meningitis. And, you know, the, the, the downside of that was that mumps virus could cause deafness. It was one of the more common causes of acquired deafness in the United States. For older people, it can cause orchitis, um, you know, sort of, which is to say inflammation of the testicles and sterility, and oophoritis, which is to say inflammation of, you know, the, 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 uh, the genital tract in, in women and, and ultimately uh, sterility there. So it was a cause of sterility. And, and, it's, uh, and so for that reason, it's important for children and adults to, to be immune to mumps. And is there an age at which, I mean, is it that college age when people are particularly at risk of sterility from mumps, or is it at any age in a person's life? That's a good question. I, I would assume it's at any age, actually. But, okay. I mean, because it can affect, obviously, the reproductive tract of men or women. So, yeah. Sure. So pertussis, though, has a different, um, when we're looking at the spread of pertussis, we have a, a different sort of age at which we're concerned about it spreading. Um, because when we're looking at, you know, 32,000 uh, pertussis cases, um, and, you, you know, we, have, we had 5,000 cases of mumps last year, and we were really concerned about that. But when we're looking at 32,000 cases of pertussis, we have, we have a virus, that, or a, not a virus, we have a disease that's circulating um, a lot more commonly than a lot of these vaccine preventable diseases. And so when we're looking at pertussis, we're not necessarily trying to, we're not trying to, you know, eliminate it from college campuses, for example, through immunization, but we're looking at babies. Um, and so how has our philosophy about vaccinating against pertussis changed since uh, in the last few years, in the last decade in particular? Right. So if you look at who dies of pertussis, it's virtually exclusively the less than three month old. So so every year, 20 to 25 children less than three months of age will die of pertussis. Now, they're not going to be protected by active immunization. So, you know, when you vaccinate children at two, four and six months of age, that's not going to protect the less than three month old from dying of pertussis. So the, the way to do that is to immunize the mother when she's pregnant you know, between 30, 27 and 36 weeks gestation so that she can develop an immune response, that, that, that she can then passively transfer that immune response, you know, through the placenta to her baby and that her baby can be, you know, protected then for those first few months of life while they're about to develop an active um, immunization. So I think the thing that's really changed is the focus on trying to, pre to, to, to prevent deaths from pertussis by immunizing the, the mother while the, uh, the baby is still in the womb. That's really, when I talk to medical students, one of the biggest points that I'm trying to get across when it comes to uh, the pertussis vaccine, because it's those um, learners that are going to be the ones who are going to make or break as far as whether or not pregnant moms are immunized 
uh, and they're going to be the ones who are going to be the most influential there. So I think that's an extremely important thing to get the word out to, to moms and to get the word out to uh, future medical providers, that if you take care of pregnant women, this is very important to us as pediatricians. I don't get much say in whether or not uh, a pregnant mom uh, is immunized. I don't, I don't get to talk to most pregnant moms during that time, although sometimes I'll do a prenatal visits, they'll, they'll come and talk to me before their baby's born and I can emphasize this, but it's very important and meaningful to me as a pediatrician. So please, everybody out there, if you're uh, pregnant, talk to your um, physician about getting immunized. And if you are going into a medical field in which you have influence on people being vaccinated, please remember that because it can, it can, easily save a life. And do we have a sense about how well we're doing as far as women getting immunized during that third trimester of pregnancy? Um, do I mean, is there a sense among public health um, about how many women are getting immunized or how well we're doing as far as getting that message out? The, 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 the most recent data that I saw um, showed that about uh, 50 to 60 percent of women who are pregnant uh, get vaccinated with whooping cough or pertussis vaccine. So we're actually doing better at immunizing adolescents against HPV than we are protecting infants from pertussis. Well, adolescents for HPV, I think the, la the last data I saw were uh, for, for girls, uh, meaning completing the series was around 45% and for okay. boys was around 20%. All right, so we're not doing well at any of those right <laughs> now. But if you think about it, I mean, the, you know, if, if we immunize pregnant women, if we immunize 100% of pregnant women with pertussis vaccine, we will prevent 20 babies from dying a year. Wow. If we immunize 100% um, of, of girls and boys from, for, for, with uh, HPV vaccine, we will prevent about 28 to 29,000 cases of cancer and yeah. about 5,000 deaths a year. That is arguably the, our biggest public health embarrassment, that we basically are, are condemning roughly 2,000 children every year given current immunization rates to grow up to get a cancer from which they could die. It, it's unconscionable and it's frankly ununderstandable. That's something that we talked about pretty heavily in the last episode. So we did an episode about HPV vaccination and we talked specifically about comparing those numbers of the morbidity and mortality to other uh, vaccines, other vaccine preventable diseases and how staggering those numbers are. Uh, I think that's an extremely good point. It's a good way of putting outbreaks into perspective for us. Thank you. Um, as far as, you know, HPV is a pretty much ubiquitous virus. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at 23 cases of measles uh, so far this year, or 495 cases of mumps so far this year, or, you know, even 30,000 cases of pertussis per year, you know, those numbers are all very, very different. And then HPV being ubiquitous. At why do we get more concerned about small numbers of some diseases than we do about bigger numbers of other diseases? You know... Yeah, I, I think it's how those diseases are perceived by the public. Uh, you know, I think it, you're right. I mean, how many how many people died of whooping cough before the whooping cough vaccine every year? Around eight thousand. 
Um, so and so I think people remember that and and so whooping cough has you know at some level a scare factor I think HPV suffers and you guys probably discussed this last time from the mode by which it's transmitted which is is sexual contact I mean unlike hepatitis B virus which also can be transmitted by sexual contact hepatitis B virus has a number of other routes by which it can be spread for for HPV human papillomavirus is really on one route and that's sexual contact I mean there are, are a couple hundred children a year who will get HPV is a pass through the mother's birth canal, but that's not the most common means. I mean, there's 79 million people in the United States who've been infected with HPV. There are 14 million new infections every year with HPV, and there are tens of thousands of people who will get cancer from HPV every year. And why is it that, that we can't convince uh, the physicians, frankly, or clinicians to, to be a strong advocates for this vaccine is not clear to me, because I think that's where the problem is. I, I, I just think clinicians, you know, Nathan obviously aside, but, you know, mm. clinicians are not great about about being strong about this vaccine and maybe it's because they have an 11 year old girl sitting in the office with her the mother and father or the mother and you know it's it's they feel uncomfortable talking about a disease that's sexually transmitted in front of a child who, who's young and who have hasn't had sex yet but again i would argue you don't have to talk about that you only have to talk about it being a cancer preventing vaccine we don't talk about how you know tetanus or, or uh, diphtheria are transmitted so why talk about how hpv is transmitted yeah i've and i've never i in I've had a lot of conversations about HPV vaccine with parents, and I always find that regardless of the approach, whether we start having talk about sex at that point or whether we start having a talk about STDs or whether we kind of just talk in general about the vaccine and I make sure that the risks and benefits of the, of the vaccine are, um, are kind of laid out, I never find that those conversations are as awkward as you might think. I, I don't think parents are as nervous to talk about those issues as you might think going in. That's not to say that there aren't any. And when you have a parent in there and you don't know exactly what the reaction is going to be, maybe you can have some hesitancy there. But I think in general, uh, and I've had a lot of conversations with other pediatricians about this. In general, we as pediatricians can probably be more confident in talking about these issues with the family, with these families, because they're important issues. Um, but in particular, yes, with HPV vaccination, um, you can kind of adjust that level of detail to the family by that point assuming that you've been following that family for 11 years or or many years at least um you probably have a sense of what they're wanting to talk about and what you need to bring up and 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 what they're comfortable with and how far into the discussions about std and safe sex and whatnot to go into at what age and I think sometimes we sell ourselves a little bit short when we don't draw upon that relationship with the family. Um, and I, I feel like, I, I, I'm curious about your opinion. So for now, I don't know how many years I've been giving talks uh, on HPV uh, vaccination to, mostly to, a lot to providers, a lot to healthcare workers and whatnot to uh, help them basically understand the importance of the vaccine to improve these concerns that we've had about providers not making uh, either not offering or not strongly recommending enough the vaccine do you feel like we're making progress do you think that that is changing i haven't seen survey data or anything lately that i can draw from and i'm wondering if you have some insight into that yeah it's going up 
a little and slowly, certainly far more slowly than one would hope. I, I, I'd like to believe that with the new HPV-9 vaccine, as, as now a two-dose vaccine, that will be easier to complete a series than the three-dose vaccine. Um, and I know that the CDC certainly has been good about funding efforts to try and uh, increase awareness of the importance of this vaccine and the, the devastating nature of the virus that it's present, preventing. Um, so we're getting there, but you know, again, every year the clock ticks to me. I, I think you know when when a parent when a parent walks with out, out of the office with a child who hasn't received the HPV vaccine, uh, to me that is a tragedy because you know that may be one of the two thousand people who every year is going to grow up to die from from a cancer caused by this vaccine. It's just it's unconscionable. I, I don't I, I just uh, it's the one I have. I think it, frankly, it's our biggest public health embarrassment. I agree, um, because again, when we talk about those numbers that we've seen in terms of uh, cases of cervical cancer uh, that are going to happen a year, uh, in terms of deaths and of the morbidity, I, I, it is pretty staggering. And that was one of the things that we covered last episode as well. Um, should we talk a little bit maybe about influenza and what's going around uh, the country right now and how good of a match the vaccine is uh, this yes. year? Let's do influenza. All yeah, right. sure. Well, my understanding is just what uh, Karen said. The, the circulating strains are H1N1, H3N2 that appear to be matched to the, to the, uh, to the vaccine. So that's good. You know, it's, it's, again, it's a vaccine that, um, depending on which year you're talking about, has between 50, is, is, is uh, about 50 to 60% effective at preventing, you know, um, laboratory-identified influenza infection, you know, which is, is, is not great. Um, do I think that we can, again, make a better influenza vaccine? I think we can, I, and I think it's going to come down to uh, making, uh, having an, uh, an adjuvanted vaccine. You're starting to see that now. We have now have a squealing adjuvanted vaccine for older people that's coming to this country and um, again I'd like to I'd like to think that we will have ad better adjuvants as we move forward but again you know it's uh, it's much better than if you don't get the influenza vaccine which gives you a zero percent chance of being protected so mm -hmm. you know 50 to 60 percent is better than zero percent well one of the things that I focus on um, talking to parents and talking to um, learners is that when I look at it in terms of the benefit for children I, uh, the data that I've seen makes a very strong case for immunizing children in particular against influenza because it seems like the vaccine is more effective in certain age groups. Uh, the virus circulates at higher rates among school children and daycare than it does to the average healthy adult. At least that's my impression. And then I see these other studies that look at communities and look at kind of the herd, the, the, the effect of herd immunity, like the herd effects that happen when you immunize communities. When we look back at when Japan required it uh, for school entry, uh, when we look at some studies that have looked at communities that are highly immunized, that have highly immunized their children against influenza versus other communities, and you see these decreases in morbidity and mortality uh, in other populations, particularly the elderly, it makes a really strong case for me to want to go to bat for that vaccine uh, that I think is missed because parents think of the influenza, they think of it in their adult mindset. They think, oh, it's the flu and I'm a healthy adult and yeah, I'll survive the flu. And I never, I don't get it very often. And that's probably true because in healthy adults, the, 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 the incidence of it is just lower. Uh, but that's not the same 
when it comes to kids. And I think that's a really important uh, point to communicate to families. Right. And, and every year, um, according to CDC data, between 75 and 150 children will die of influenza. Most of those children were previously healthy. And if you talk to those parents who, who's had this tragedy befall them, you know, they're members of groups like, you know, Families Fighting Flu or the Alyssa Kanowitz Foundation. They all tell the same story. I, I can't believe this happened to me. And then they become, you know, vigorous activists for getting people to understand the importance of the disease and the value of the vaccine. You know, you don't want to become a member of a parent activist group if you can help it. And yeah. and so they, they tell compelling stories. And it's always the same. They can't believe it happened to them. But the point you made earlier, Nathan's a good one. Years ago in Japan, when they first introduced a, uh, a school-based immunization program for flu, they found not only that they had a, a dramatic decrease, obviously, in the incidence of hospitalization associated with uh, vaccinated kids, but there was a dramatic decrease in, in older adults uh, in, in influenza. So you're right. And you know that that uh, idea of the community effect of uh, immunizing a large portion of the of people against influenza um, brings up a question I have about uh, an article that just came out about the effectiveness of requiring as uh, as a condition of employment influenza vaccines for hospital workers and there's some debate about whether or not that is as effective as people say so is is that you know, I, I know there's some debate about that. Where do you fall on that? Uh, well, yeah, I was actually on the ACIP when we were moving toward this uh, this recommendation, which became a more formal recommendation later. Um, you know, we went through those data. If, if you if you look at the nosocomial infection rate in, in uh, hospitals where there is a mandatory flu vaccine that's enforced versus uh, ones where it aren't, there's not, and you can look at immunization rates in one hospital versus the other, I think the data were pretty clear that you, you know, that, that uh, the higher the immunization rates among healthcare personnel the lower the nosocomial infection rate. But again, you have to mean the program. You have to really mean it when you have that program. We do at our hospital. We starting in 2009, um, we required an influenza vaccine for anybody who could walk into the room. So not just, you know, clinicians or healthcare personnel, but environmental services, dietary, anybody who could walk into that room. And so, and, you know, we meant it which is to say that if you chose not to get an influenza vaccine, you had two weeks of unpaid leave to think about it. If you still didn't get the influenza vaccine, you were fired. So we fired nine people in 2009. We haven't, uh, and, and every year, actually, we, we still fire a few people who choose not to get an influenza vaccine. So we mean it, and our nosocomial rate has decreased. So I think, I think you know, that it works is clear. And it makes sense it would work, right? Because the nosocomial infection rate generally is, is caused when someone comes into the hospital with flu, and then someone who comes into the hospital who doesn't have flu um, gets flu in the hospital. Usually they get it from, from somebody else in the hospital. Well, and it only makes sense in that as healthcare workers, we're required to be immunized against, you know, we, we need to make sure that our vaccines are up to date when we start, you know, when I was starting medical school or when I was starting residency, um, it only makes sense that we would need to be uh, immunized against a currently circulating uh, virus that we don't currently have immunity against. Uh, if we haven't gotten this year's vaccine, most likely. So uh, I, I, I fail to see the logic in not requiring influenza vaccine for uh, healthcare workers. And I think the philosophy of everybody who has potential con uh, contact with a patient, uh, that only makes sense as well. 
And as far as uh, face masks, are are those effective at all for people who aren't getting flu vaccines? No. Uh, I mean, first of all, if you wear them for about 30 minutes, they'll start to get wet, you know, where, where your mouth is. And that's so they become more porous. Plus, you can, you know, you can... Um, transmit the virus sort of around the sides. I mean, if you wear an N95 respirator mask, which I think no one could do, frankly, for 30 minutes in their job and, and continue to wear it, uh, that would be more effective. But no, I think it more is, it sort of has a, a stigma of, of kind of wearing a scarlet letter, you know, that you're a person who hasn't been given the influenza vaccine. I think that's its only benefits. But no, I think it's more, um, it's, it's more how it looks than, than what it's really achieving. Well, you know, and there's so many ways to tell that the person that is uh, is uh, your doctor or your nurse has been given a vaccine. You know, um, I know in our healthcare system, the one that we go to, um, the doctors and nurses and everyone wears a little tag. And so I always, I always say, is that orange tag mean you got your vaccine for flu? And they say, yeah, how'd you know? I'm like, I just wanted to say thank you for getting your flu shot. I appreciate <laughs> you protecting me. Um, so, you know, I little things like that, that I think little badges of pride are probably better than scarlet letters anyhow. Yeah, we have stickers on our IDs and they change every year. So we have, they have some cute little saying that's catchy and that's reminds, uh, and it, I think it helps remind uh, patients and parents as to how important it is too that we take it seriously. Absolutely. Um, I want to uh, round out with measles now. Um, because I think that measles is one of those uh, outbreaks that happens that people don't understand why people get upset when there are three or four measles cases in their community. Um, this year, so far, there are 23 cases of measles. Um, and last year, there were 70 cases. And that doesn't sound like a lot. Um, and I know in in my state of Minnesota, we're told that we have you know one or two measles cases every year that maybe don't even make the news. Um, what's the threshold where we worry about measles cases or we worry about it becoming something that's going to turn into, you know, a 2014 outbreak with 667 cases or, you know, an outbreak uh, from Disneyland, which ended up killing a woman in Washington state. Wh where is there a threshold or how do we worry about, I shouldn't say how do we worry about, but when do we become concerned about measles cases breaking through and becoming something that really is a significant threat to our communities. Right. Measles um, should scare the hell out of people. Uh, first of all, before there was a measles vaccine, every year there were, you know, there were several million cases and there would be 48,000 hospitalizations and about 500 deaths. Measles makes you sick. And measles is a ridiculously highly contagious infection. I mean, there was the, probably the best example was, and this was a New England Journal of Medicine paper, was an outbreak in Indiana in 2005 where a woman who was unvaccinated, she was part of a church group, she was a teenager, went to Romania, you went to an orphanage, went to a hospital, unbeknownst to her, caught measles, gets on a plane and comes back and then uh, attends a church picnic. Um, she's now shedding virus but really hasn't started to develop uh, her rash yet because you're shedding really your most virus could have started two or three days before you develop ev an evident rash. So she's at a church party of a uh, picnic of 500 people. Um, of the uh, of that the, the in that picnic there were 465 people who either had been previously infected or naturally or, or, or immunized.
immunized. Of those 465, three people, so less than 1% got infected. Of the remaining 35 people who had neither been either naturally infected or immunized, 31 got sick. 31 of 35. She was only there for two hours. What that tells you is she didn't need to have face-to-face -face contact with those 35 people. They just had to at some point be in her airspace. When someone comes into our hospital with measles or suspected measles, no one can go in that room for two hours while we let those small droplet particles settle to the ground. Um, it's a, a highly contagious disease which causes caused an enormous amount of hospitalization and, and some death. And if you know it's a it's playing with fire. I think the fact when you see any measles cases in this country, you know that you are playing with fire because it is that contagious, which is why you need a, a very high percentage of the population to be immunized in order to keep it at bay. It's it, and and you know the fact is is you know in, in the Philippines for example there's tens of thousands of cases of, a year and and international travels common so it's a dangerous game we play when we don't have a highly immunized population I think and the answer to your question is any amount of cases should be worrisome to people because that's a fire mm -hmm. that can rapidly spread. Well, I think if you look at those yearly cases, you know every every infectious disease waxes and wanes a bit so. You know, there might have been 70 or so. I can't remember what numbers you said, Karen, but like last year. But if you look at from, mm -hmm. say, 2009 till now, you kind of see, you know, a, a, a little spike that's up, getting close to 100, then down for a year or two. Then you see a spike that's higher. It's in the couple hundreds or 300s, and then it's down a little bit. And then you see um, that 600 year that I think was 2014 or so, and then down a little bit. But we have the the Disneyland outbreak. So you're seeing this trend that is mm -hmm. very uh, frightening. Um, and so who knows? Uh, and you see a lot of talk about the clustering in, in communities, particularly in California, having very low rates. And so a lot of some of those outbreaks are in those areas. Um, but you do kind of wonder what is this? How is this trend going to continue unless we start to make changes to our strategies? Dr. Offit, uh, I, I feel like I'm going to butcher this a bit because I'm literally going off headlines that I've seen. But I feel like recently when you've talked about what we can do to make changes, you've talked a little bit about um, community groups. Am, am I saying is, is this? Am I getting this right at all? That that banding together and and um, talking about or, or pushing back am i making this up or did i <laughs> <laughs> no i, I think I, yeah there, this may be in from a, a recent meeting um uh, the association of immunization managers meeting yeah no what i said was in answer to a question about sort of what people felt was kind of uh, science under siege especially under the current administration what can we do mm -hmm. I, I think that 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 you know we should create in a sense a band of citizen scientists who are out there sort of to educate you know the public in in all venues about the importance of science and the importance of uh, especially of vaccines but and I think I, I think that involves everybody I mean not just scientists but you know any anybody who's a science enthusiast or science advocate or science teacher sure, or science sure. student you know should be able willing to get out there I remember um, probably the most harrowing talk I've ever given in my life was when I went to speak to my daughter's eighth grade class about vaccines <laughs> nice. oh, yes. i was actually more nervous about that than when i was on the colbert report because you know <laughs> throughout that entire you know 40 minute talk you know there was one little girl sitting in that room that just kept staring forward grimly you know never moved with a look on her face that said do not embarrass me in front of my friends <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> It's always tougher, too, when you don't know exactly what the crowd is going to be like. I suppose <laughs> that would be no more true than in that situation. So let me ask a question about, you know, mumps and measles and pertussis and influenza. 
and HPV, uh, the whole kit and caboodle, how much of our outbreaks that we're seeing today are, can we blame on the anti-vaccine movement? Well, measles, definitely. I think mumps to a, to a lesser extent, and I think pertussis to some extent. I mean, that, that outbreak in California in 2010 where 10 people died, I mean, that 10 children died. I mean, that was, a, that was I think, much more directly associated with uh, a choice not to vaccinate children. But So I think it, at some level, to some extent in all of them, but certainly far and away the most to measles. And, and, you know, I think you could make an argument, too, that um, women are afraid to get pertussis vaccines in pregnancy because of the chatter of the anti-vaccine movement, that they, they're not sure if it's safe to get it in pregnancy, and it is, um, that, that that might push people away from protecting their newborn babies. That's a good point. All right, I want to thank Dr. Paul Offit for joining us at Vax Talk today. And I also want to mention before he leaves that he has a new book coming out in, in April called Pandora's Lab. Uh, what is that book going to be about, Dr. Offit? Right, well, the, the subtitle is Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. But what it is, is it's seven inventions uh, that I think changed the world for the worse. Wow, that sounds, that sounds really interesting, actually. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and everyone look for Pandora's Lab in April. Uh, my name is Karen Ernst and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines on the internet at voicesforvaccines.org. Make sure you become a member. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Um, with the number four replacing the word for voices for vaccines on Instagram at the same handle and on Facebook. Um, and uh, Nathan? Uh, I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And please find me on Twitter. I'm at PedsGeekMD. And I also am on Facebook and I blog at PedsGeekMD.com. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And make sure to go out and get your flu shot. Bang, 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 bang,